You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Cistierna. Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freiber. I am the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am Sistierna in the province of Leon, where I can tell you it started to rain. Um, you wouldn't have seen that at the finish if you're watching the race today. It was pretty dry all day, pretty warm. However, we've had some thunder in the last half an hour and it's looking pretty grim outside at the moment. However, joining us from the other side of Spain, where I don't think the weather's grim at all. In fact, um, the only uncomfortable thing about it is the heat, I suspect. He's joining us from Alfas del Pi on the Costa Blanca, a man who made his Vuelta a España debut in the 1980s. He's a current and former contributor to countless Spanish newspapers, magazines and websites, including Meta 2000, Las Provincias, and Ciclo 21. He's the namesake of one of the greatest classics riders of all time, but he is not the emperor of Herentals or even related to Rick Van Looy. Despite spending a few years in Antwerp in his youth, it's Nicolas Van Looy. Nicolas, how are you? Hi, good afternoon. Uh, suffering the heat here in the Costa Blanca, as you said. Yeah, yeah. and expecting uh, all of you guys to arrive next uh, beginning next you, year. You're waiting for us. We'll be there in just a couple of days after that mammoth 900-kilometer drive, which I can tell you is causing quite a lot of consternation um, among the journalists, among the people working for the teams. I heard one team bus driver today say that um, they'll be setting off on Sunday morning, so the rest day is Monday. That's when most people will be making the journey, but the team buses will be leaving on Sunday and um, yeah, taking on that 900-kilometer drive. I mean, the general feeling at the race is that it's pretty irresponsible, dangerous and certainly environmentally unfriendly to ask people to drive 900 kilometers um, on the second rest day after you know there were some people and I think the teams have managed this to make sure that the staff haven't had to do both of these drives um, but there were some people journalists who drove all the way down from the Netherlands to uh, Vitoria Gasteiz a few days ago so yeah not not ideal from our point of view. No, I, I was just thinking about that yesterday, and I didn't do the maths. But I think if we if, if we add all the kilometers, uh, the race kilometers, and all the uh, transfer kilometers done from uh, the Netherlands and uh, from the north of Spain to to the Costa Blanca on a Sunday or Monday, uh, we'll get uh, a non very sustainable uh, result. In which uh, I think if if we are trying to make cycling a sustainable sport. We should think a little bit more about that. Yeah, and, and as mentioned previously on the podcast, the Vuelta has been good at that generally compared to the other Grand Tours. They're sort of leading the way as far as sustainability is concerned with things like electric vehicles, doing away with plastic bottles and so on and so forth. However, I wonder whether it isn't time for a rule for various reasons, safety reasons, but also environmental reasons, for a ban on, I don't know, 300-kilometer-plus transfers at any point, besides maybe foreign overseas Grand Depas, Grand Salidas, or um, Grandi Partense, for, because they're useful, as we know, for financial reasons. Um, they, they're important. However, when in the second week of a race you're going 900 kilometers across a country, 
Um, I don't really think that's that's justifiable on a lot of levels. I was talking to a, I mean, this is a lot, this is a, a long tangent. This is turning into. I was talking to someone from a team the other day. They were telling me that nowadays it costs over a thousand euros at the moment to fill up their team buses. So, yeah, um, yeah not 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 doing too well on that score, professional cycling. However, Nico, you have been watching the Vuelta a España. I want to ask you. I mentioned I reeled off the list of all of the illustrious publications you worked for in the past. How is this Vuelta a España so far? being received in Spain via the media, particularly after a really good day for the Spanish riders yesterday with Enric Mas and Juan Ayuso among the stars. Yeah, I think the hype is, uh, is back for cycling in Spain after, uh, after Enric's um, very good performance yesterday, of course Ayuso's as well, but ne- we, we, we shouldn't forget Carlos Rodriguez uh, either. He's done a very good Vuelta. Once again, as, uh, as we spoke uh, Last day we we spoke. I think it was last Friday, one week ago. Correct. A little bit of a yep. surprise each time Carlos is there. Uh, oh, Carlos Rodriguez is with the with the best guys, and uh, once again we 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 tend to um, to forget uh, naming him. So I think the Vuelta is, has brought uh, the hype the hype back for cycling, as we were expecting, especially after the Tour de France uh, performance by Enrique. Uh, some quite of a downhill for Spanish cycling, but after after two two stages, uh, two stage wins, and and Enrique being there, uh, especially seeing him recovered on the mental side of it, I think uh, there's two more weeks of fun coming up. Well, we will talk about the mentality, the psyche of Emmerich Mas and other riders later in the episode. But you did mention a second Spanish stage win today. I guess that's our cue to get on with this. Take it away, Rob Hatch. El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. Nico, it is the resumen del etapa a contrarreloj. Are you ready? You have 90 seconds starting from now. Okay, let's try. I think only La Vuelta España can present a stage with a first category climb on it and on paper be considered a, sprint, a stage for sprinters. After two very hard days, especially yesterday and with uh, two Asturian stages waiting on Saturday and Sunday, the riders have not had a single kilometre of rest today. It may not have been the funniest uh, stage to watch on TV, but it has been done on a very high high pace, especially due to the work of uh, Trek Segafredo, has done on the climb to San Glorio, trying to eliminate as much Matt Pedersen's rivals as possible. But however... And against all odds, the breakaway guys have worked well together until the very end and have reached Cistierna, which enough of an advantage to dispute the victory between them. Finally, Jesús Herrada was the not-so-surprising winner, giving Spain its second stage wow, win. Wow, not surprising. Well, wow, not more so of that later. surprising winner in, uh, as I said, its second uh, stage win in the national race for Spain which added, uh, as we said before, to Enrique Massa's uh, good sensation, must feel like a big relief to all fans. And all this just before a new uphill, and in this case of uh, Pico Jano, uh, as, the case, as, as the case in Pico Jano yesterday, unprecedented finish in Collao Fancuaya, very difficult to pronounce, where, uh, as happened in Cantabria, bad weather can be as determining factor as, it, as the climb itself and the five President climbs in tomorrow's stage. 
Wow, fan fantastic, right in on the 90 seconds. Um, I will just mention for you that on general classification, nothing much has changed. Uh, Remco Evenepoel still leads the Vuelta a España by 21 seconds from Rudy Mollard. And Eric Mas, the home hero of this Vuelta so far, is third on 28 seconds down. Primoz Roglic is one minute, one second down. In the points competition, Sam Bennett still leads. And with 142 points, he's got a healthy lead of, uh, let me work this out, this is, it's 25, no, um, 15 points only from Mads Pedersen. And on the King of the Mountains competition, Victor Longelotti, the Monegasque rider, still leads, still has the polka dot jersey. And Remco, of course, still has the white jersey. Now, you just said, uh, Nico, that you're, you weren't surprised that Jesus Herrada won the stage. Um, People who do know Jesus Herrada, know his pedigree, uh, have witnessed him perform in the Vuelta a España before. Well, we know he's a good finisher and we know he's, he's fast. However, he's also an, ex an excellent climber. And usually when you see climbers against you know, good rulers and, and riders who are known to have a fast finish like Fred Wright, you assume that they will come off second or third or fourth best. But you said you, you fancied his chances coming into the finish. Well, yeah, we know... As you said, he's a very good climber. He, nevertheless, he won uh, Mont Ventoux, uh, Denis Belea some years ago. But he has also won the Spanish National Championship some, uh, I think it was in 2017. Um, in some, some uh, stages uh, that you could say not 100% sprinter stages like today. But I, as I said, it was not so surprising. Um, if you if you if you see his uh, perf his earlier performances during his career, he's a, he's a fast guy, and I think he was over motivated today. If he was in that breakaway, it's because he he thought he could uh, the breakaway could arrive in Fistierna and there have his chances. He did a, I, in my opinion, he did a very very intelligent sprint. He waited, he waited, he waited, and it, it turned up. It paid off. Well, Nico, I can tell you that well, there was a lot of anguish that I witnessed. I was standing behind the finish line, about 100 metres behind the finish line, and there was a lot of... Well, I thought there was anguish on Jesus Herrada's face as well because I, uh, he, his gesture, well, he let out a bit of a cry and uh, I, didn't, I wasn't watching the TV piece at that time. I was just watching the riders come over the line and I thought that was a cry that signified that he'd lost the Batistella. Um, I don't know whether in those 100 or 200 metres after the finish he thought that or whether it was it was a sort of anguished cry of joy or uh, um, uh, something to that effect there was anguish on the part of obviously his breakaway companions none more so than Fred Wright who was very upset that he he hadn't been told um, by his team that it was a he was going to be a headwind on the finishing straight although we learned later that a few riders got conflicting messages today about the wind and it certainly wasn't doing what they expected it to do. And then there was a lot of anguish as well in the main peloton because, well, they fully expected, and one man in particular, Mads Pedersen, said quite emphatically this morning that the peloton was going to catch whatever break was up the road and they were going to contest the victory. And he rode like a man who thought, and his team rode like a team that thought that was going to be the outcome of today's stage. And they were going to make sure that that was the outcome of today's stage. However, it wasn't. So let's hear, shall we, from a few of the beaten parties. Not from Fred Wright. We'll hear more about him and maybe from him as well later. But let's hear from Jimmy Janssen's 
of Alpecin de Koenig, who was also in that break, the winning break. Harry Sweeney from Lotto Sudal, his is the first voice you'll hear. And also Mads Pedersen, his will be the last voice you hear. So Sweeney, Janssens, then Pedersen. Yeah, well, the, the plan was actually to try and get out more time on the climb, but it ended up being that we lost time to the peloton on the climb. Um, yeah, and then, to be honest, I thought that it was all over when we got to the bottom, and it was supposed to be a tailwind directly off the climb, and it was just block headwind. And then I think it was probably only maybe 12k to go, 10k to go that I thought we might make it, but... Yeah, I mean, I didn't really have the best day on the bike. I feel like I bought my legs on Wish.com today, but uh, yeah. Um, I was hoping, even if I didn't have good legs, that Freddie might have got his win, but yeah, it was a really tough day out. I suffered pretty much from the gun. Um, yeah, hopefully my legs get better, but yeah, fourth place, I think it's probably all I could have managed today. I thought I was in good position, actually. Third place, I thought Fred might blow, and then... Yeah, I, I just didn't have the legs to come around. I think if I had good legs today, it probably would have been the perfect way for me to play out the sprint. But, yeah, I mean, I started sprinting and my legs pretty much just locked up. So All my legs were already uh, broken already after the climb. And I couldn't imagine how the other feel. So I thought I was the weakest. But in the end, I I had to gamble more. I thought it was uh, in the meeting. It was tailwind, but obviously it was uh, headwind. So it was uh, really hard, and yeah, we worked well together. And in the final, it was it was hard to. I had to slip away, but I, my team uh, team leader, he said, take the roundabout on the left. Unfortunately, we all go to the left. So that was my first idea on two kilometers of the meet. Uh, finish. I wanted to go, but yeah, that doesn't work. We were hoping it would not be a breakaway day. Finally, it was. Well, not much, but it was there. And what do you want to get out of that question? Well, tell us what failed today um, to bring it back to the sprint. Yeah, you saw in the end, uh, my guys tried everything they could, and it was not enough today. So, uh, pretty strong breakaway, and, and congrats to to them. They they were really strong and, and played it well. You lack a bit of a support from the other team in the after the climb, actually. Well, you know, we are not calculating on support from other teams. You know, we we are calculating on support from from ourselves. And of course, we would hope that the the chase started earlier, but it didn't, and, and we can't change it now. So that's racing, and, and congrats to to the breakaway. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Check out the Super Sapiens podcast if you want to learn a lot more about fueling strategies for training and for racing. It's hosted by Zylon Van Eck and Dr. David Lippmann. Dr. Lippmann is the head of applied science at Super Sapiens and he really knows his onions when it comes to fueling for sport. 
Uh, that's certainly not me recommending onion as an energy food, by the way. Um, listen to the experts. I'm, I'm no expert, but I have been learning a lot from the podcast. In the most recent episode, they've been talking about the importance of practicing your fueling regime. And in this clip, we're going to hear Zylon Van Eck talking about an occasion when he tried something new on race day and it backfired. To hear Dr. Lippmann's advice, check out the full episode wherever you listen to your podcast. It's called the Super Sapiens Podcast. Man, I'm so disappointed in my last Ironman and my fueling strategy. I had between 60 and 80 grams of carbs an hour on the bike, and that was quite a lot for me. I I trialed it in in training and it was all good and on the bike. But then when we started running, I took some salt tablets that I'd never taken before, and I would have just liked to go, 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 and but I couldn't because my stomach was upset and I wanted to vomit all the time. So... Yeah, like I'll never know, but I wondered if fueling so much on the bike would have helped my run. Is that why my legs felt so good and it was just the salt tablet that, you know, set off an explosion in my stomach is the only way I could I could explain it, really. Well, we heard before the short commercial interlude from, well, pretty salty-sounding Mads Pedersen. I can understand why he was upset. Um, because Trek Segafredo did a lot of work, but he, he yeah, he wasn't in the mood really for a, a, a long lyrical interview um, after the finish, shall we say. Um, Nico, you pointed out to me while we were waiting to come back that Jesus Herrada, he did in fact know that he had won straight away. Yeah, you can see that on TV. He, he celebrates uh, his victory on the, on the finish line. So he knew he had won. Many, many times it happens. The, the riders themselves can see it better. We had to wait for the finish to come up. But he knew that he had won. So those, those tears were just joy tears. He was crying. But I think that shows pretty much all the effort, effort months of preparation that always after one of those... Uh, we always uh, focus more on on the, on the general classification and, uh, and the big names and the big wins. But these guys work so hard uh, so many times when they can have their, their chance and they, and they get it and they win. Uh, you can see on those tears uh, all that all that hard work and all the emotions. That come up. They played it really well in the break, didn't they? Um, they worked well together. I think the first time anyone really missed a turn. In fact, Herada attacked over the climb, um, which uh, Harry Sweeney, I know, wasn't very happy about. But they did play it pretty well. They worked well together. And it, once again, and this has been a theme of this season, it illustrated that the old rule of thumb that we used to employ, the one-minute for 10 kilometers to chase back a break it no longer really applies partly because the riders are also strong i mean we heard earlier two riders in the break say that they didn't think they had good legs and yet they still managed to hold off the peloton also because of equipment which we hear about all the time every rider is wearing aero socks skin suits with riding aero bikes um so it's often much more difficult for a peloton to chase a group like that back um, as we saw again today. Um, but I was going to ask you, Nico, um, Jesus Herrada, does he represent a bit of a... Well, well, we'll talk a lot later in the Vuelta about Alejandro Valverde, and we spoke in our first podcast about you know, the pressure on Ayuso, in particular Rodriguez, um, to, to really take on the mantle of Valverde and um, 
Well, and the, the generation really that has now departed the Puritos and the even going back further, Oscar Freire, there's been a little bit of a, of a vacuum, um, a sort of middle age vacuum, middle age in cycling terms. The guys between the age of sort of 28 and 32 haven't been as successful as their predecessors were. But Gerardo was someone, wasn't he, that people did expect to be in the very sort of top tier of international cycling when he was a young rider. I think so, yeah, but uh, once again in a, in a country like Spain or any other country which has had uh, uh, the biggest figures in the sport in the past, like it, it happened in Belgium, it happened in France, it happened in Italy and it's happening in Spain. Once you have those Albertos, uh, Alejandros, Eddie Merckx, uh, Bernardino, uh, I don't know, just name it. You're always seeking for the sec for the next one. It happened after Miguel Indurain retirement. Uh, everyone hoped that Abraham Olano was the next Indurain, and there was gonna just there's only one Miguel Indurain, just as there's only one Alejandro Valverde. Just don't put so much much uh, pressure on uh, on these guys. And yeah, Jesus Jesus Herrada was and is a very very talented uh, cyclist, and and uh, he has won many races and. But yeah, no, not on the level of Alberto and, and Alejandro, because they are unique. And, you know, as we've spoken about with, well, with pretty much every one of the old cycling territories over the last few years, they've been the, Spain has been the victim of globalization as well as other things. I mean, I would, um, you know, there are certainly caveats, there are certainly asterisks um, to put next to the names of some of the most successful Spanish um, cycling generation and we'll talk about that again later in the Vuelta when it comes to um, sort of meditating on the career of Alejandro Valverde but there's no doubt that cycling has become much more international and, um, and there are simply more riders from, from more different countries and, and that's diluted the influence of the old cycling powers um, I want to move on now Nico a bit of a theme of tonight's episode is going to be the battle in cycling or in cyclist heads, professional cyclist heads, between sort of reason and emotion. Um, Plato said there are two horses pulling in opposite directions. I think it's the first time Plato's been, co- been quoted in the cycling podcast. But um, th- there's this sort of th- this psychodrama being played out involving Fred Wright. And uh, you heard Harry Sweeney talk about how he sort of hoped almost that Fred Wright was going to win. Fred Wright has come so close to winning stages at the Tour de France. He came close multiple times. And today it looked certain that he was going to win because he was the fastest rider in that group on paper. And I think everyone in that group was, was afraid that Fred Wright um, was going to be the fastest guy there. He then found himself in the worst position possible for a headwind sprint. Not if, as Fred did, you thought that it was tailwind. But um, it proved his undoing, and, and he's starting to get really frustrated. And well, just to illustrate this, I spoke to him yesterday morning in Bilbao about what had happened the previous day, and um, when again he looked as though he was in a good position, not only to win the stage but to take the red jersey, and, and neither came off. And this is what he told me about how he was possibly going to alter his approach going forward. I just need to keep a cool head. I think I got, I got maybe a bit too frustrated yesterday. Just need to. Need to gamble a little bit more. Maybe show that I was, you know, play my playing act, the acting card a little bit and protect, you know, sort of not not show my card so early. I guess I kind of I made it quite maybe a bit too clear that I was a strong, like one of the strongest in that in that move. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe that's what cost me. But ah, you, you race how you race, you know. You race how you want to race in the in the moment. So it's hard to 
you can all, you know it's easy to look back and see what you could have done differently but uh, it's it's gonna come at some point and I'm I'm just yeah I really enjoyed it yesterday on the crowds on the on the climb and everything I think you got I got to absorb that as well as mate, there's the disappointment but you you know still a great day I mean, Nick, I suppose if there's any consolation from Fred for Fred Wright today, the problem wasn't the one that he just identified there. It wasn't the fact that he didn't gamble, it wasn't willing to lose the race, because I guess that's what he was talking about there. You, you have to be willing to lose the race or to take the risk of losing sometimes. And, you know, he didn't try and attack with four kilometres to go and sabotage the whole thing, whole break. He, he played everything um, exactly as he should have played it until those last sort of 800 metres and there, you know, based on what he said or what we heard him say at the finish, um, there was a, a, a communication breakdown with his team or they didn't give him the information that perhaps he would have needed to win the race. Um, and he approached it as though it was going to be a tailwind sprint. But, you know, you as an outsider must look at a guy like Fred Wright and just think it's a matter of time. It might be a matter of days. I mean, he, he came to this Vuelta España, he told me the other day, he was only here to look after Mikel Lander in the Netherlands. I mean, Bahrain would have been quite content if he'd gone home after three days. That was his only job. However, he's felt so good um, in this first week that he wants to stay. And not only does he want to stay, he's clearly desperate to win stages. Sportsmen have to believe in themselves. Uh, His case is very much similar to Adam Budo's case uh, in the last years. I, I tend to think that once... Guys with such talent, once they win their first professional race, um, have much less pressure on them and they start to believe in themselves. But I think uh, the main problem for most of the riders of this generation is that they have forgotten one verb, which is play. Uh, sports, sport is usually played. You play football, you play tennis, you play basketball. Uh, we've never used it, at least not in Spanish. I think also it, it isn't also the case in English. You don't play cycling. But this is what it's funny. Bernardino used to say that you should do precisely that. Yeah. But as you say, very few riders do, particularly not nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, an interview with Valverde many years ago uh, after his first uh, after his first Strade Bianche, and. Um, I was just asking him about his uh, why he didn't go to the classics uh, on his uh, young years and so on, and he said because I didn't I didn't find it fun at the time. Now he was back then he was maybe thirty seven, thirty six, something like that. He was all, already an old guy in the in the bunch, and he said now I'm having fun. I just go and play and make the fans uh, happy, and while the fans are happy, I'm happy, and vice versa. So I think if these young guys start to forget a little bit about all these VAT meters and the information, if the wind is coming from the right, from the left, from, the, from above, from, from under, I don't know, and they start playing a little bit more like Remco did in, in, in San Sebastian two times with such a wonderful mm. uh, result, I think we are, we are all going to have such a better time watching cycling and they're going to have more profit of it in terms of winning or at least making memorable moments yeah I think you're right it seems slightly harsh to criticise Fred Wright on that score today but one could contend that you know he could should have felt the wind um, as he came into the 
to the finishing straight and and you know there is possibly an over-reliance um, on the part of this generation on well the tools that we talk about every day power meters um, velo viewer and so forth and so on we, we talk about how the briefings at the morning when we wait for riders to come off the bus for interviews the briefings have got longer and longer they used to be 10 or 15 minutes i mean as a nice counterpoint to that we had a good laugh a couple of years ago at the giro Italia last year um a rider who's slightly uh, well he he, he he would like to think, and I, th- I would like to agree with him, that he combines the best of the old and the new. Max Chandri of uh, Movistar, you know, on a day when there were crosswinds predicted at the Giro d'Italia in the middle of Italy, it was, it was a stage from somewhere like Emilia Romagna, um, sorry, Reggio Emilia to Parma or something along those lines. And Max said that he'd, he'd got up on the bus that day and he'd simply, he told the riders to imagine a weather front crossing Italy. And, and to just imagine what that was going to feel like. And um, that was all they needed to know. And he sent them out with that message. I don't, I'm not sure how the stage went for Movistar. I don't recall a Movistar rider um, winning the stage. But what he was getting at was that he wanted them to feel the race, feel the conditions, and, and use their instinct. But um, it, it's very difficult to find a balance, I think, when you've grown up with all that information. And we laud all of these tools, and we say that this is why professional cycling has has become better the riders have become a lot better because these tools are available when they're 12 13 14 years old there and they're performing at a much higher level so you can't jettison all of that um, but maybe sometimes it does come at the expense of some of that old school savoir faire yeah sure i mean the 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 advantages of all this uh it put into uh into cycling uh, you, you can't deny that and you have to play yeah you have to play with that as well but there are moments when I think that there are still moments where, where, where the rider has to forget about all that. If I have the legs, if I feel I have the legs, if I think I have the legs, let's do an all-in and try, try. Because I've, I've written this uh, since uh, many years ago, since uh, Nairo Quintana's uh, time in, in Movistar. There's been a time when Movistar, it seemed to me like Movistar was, was riding with the uh, intention of not losing the race instead of winning the race. And uh, that never worked, works out. If, if you don't want to win the race, you're never going to win the race. If you don't want to lose the race, it's sure you're not going to win it, but there's a big chance you, you lose it. And, and I think that's what happened to Movistar and other teams and some other teams during these, uh, these last 15, 10 years. Uh, and that's changing now. If you, if, if you see who's won the Tour de France and how he has won the Tour de France in the last three years, how the Vuelta has been won by Roglic, how San Sebastián is being uh, won by Renko, how the classics are are uh, are being ridden uh, now in, in these years. Even cyclocross has changed in, the, in, that, in that term. They, they are just... Uh, I'm not going to say they are braver than, than they were some not so, so long ago, but it's funnier that they, they're playing more. I mean, I think the verb is play. However, just to conclude this part, I would say that Fred Wright has nothing to worry about and that that victory will arrive probably a few days from now. Yeah, sure. As I said, uh, I think it's pretty much the same case as with uh, Adam Bodo. And once, once you win that first uh, victory, that first stage of your life, everything gets easier well Nico stop press we have indeed in the end heard from Fred Wright 
about what went wrong in that finale today. So, yeah, it was kind of break went fairly early on and I sort of jumped over some of a client to get into it and I was, you know, really happy to be there. It was sort of, we had a good group of six guys working really well together. And, uh, yeah, we, I kind of didn't think we would we were going to make it because I sort of found out some of the sprinters were still in the bunch after the climb. Well, they got back to the bunch anyway, so I kind of was... It was only till it was only really to the last sort of ten, fifteen k that I was like, "Hang on a second, they're not, it ain't, it ain't coming back." So we're gonna we're gonna do this, but yeah, I just I just started sprinting too early, and I think it's hard, you know, like people saying, "Oh, you should have gone from the back," but it's hard to it's it's easier said than done, you know. Everyone everyone there knew I was probably the fastest, so yeah, I'm so gutted. It means a lot to. I think it means a lot to everyone on the team as well, like to get that, to get that win on the board. But nice, uh, yeah, it's a shame. But you know, yeah, I just needed to play the sprint a bit better. But it's all learning, so I'm sure there'll be, I'm sure there'll be more opportunities. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm feeling great and ready, ready for more opportunities. Yeah, ready for more breakaways. It's hard, again, it's hard when you want it so bad. I think that's, again, why I went a bit earlier, because you see the finish line, you think, I've, I've got the best sprint here, I'm just going to go for it. And I think, you know, it's easy to forget that. And the, it's it's hard to not let the emotions come in and not, you got to sort of keep a cool head. But I think as soon as it clicks and I learn what, you know, how, how it's done, I think it's going to... It's gonna get a lot easier. That's just a shame because it would be nice to have to have won the stage for the for the team today. But yeah, um, don't know about the best moment of the day. I think maybe when the best moment was finding out, finding out we, we there was a chance we we're gonna make it. I think that was, you know, you put all that hard work in, and I think we were all a bit thinking it was wasn't gonna happen. But yeah, when you find out it's looking like looking more likely, then you get get really motivated and uh, I'm just looking forward to having a sleep and a massage and yeah looking looking to the next days and just yeah 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 I'm I'm not I'm not gonna lie I'm really gutted but I've just got to try and stay positive because it's coming it's definitely coming that's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode of the Cycling Podcast Vuelta coverage is sponsored by NordVPN, which is a virtual private network to keep your data safe and secure whenever you're online, whether at home or on the move. I actually signed up for NordVPN as a customer long before they started sponsoring the cycling podcast, and I did so because I was just a bit concerned about the security of some of the online connections I was using when I was away for work, particularly the 4G on my phone or hotel Wi-Fi hotspots or even the Wi-Fi in race press rooms. And so NordVPN gives me the security of knowing that hackers aren't able to intercept my data. And that's especially important when doing sensitive things like online banking, when you want to be doubly sure that your data is safe and secure. Then when I got home, I thought, well, why wouldn't I want that same level of security at home? And with NordVPN, you can protect up to six devices. And so I've got my laptop, tablet, phone, even the internet router protected by NordVPN. 
For the price of about a coffee a month, it's a small price to pay for premium cybersecurity. And all Cycling Podcast listeners can get an exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash TCP to get a huge discount plus four months free off a NordVPN plan. It's also completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, our daily dusting down of La Vuelta a España gramophone as we review the official anthems of the race and the additions that they accompanied. Tonight, Nico, we're going back to 1979. The official song, well, one of the official songs, because there were actually two. Um, I'm going to get to this in a minute. Why were there multiple official songs? Um, it was Good Night Tonight, written by Paul McCartney, performed by Wings. It was originally meant to be a backing instrumental, but it was later released as a single and was notable for its disco-inflected sound and spirited flamenco guitar break. in the UK and US charts. Now, Nicker, why sometimes, in the late 70s in particular, were the two official songs of the world? Do you know? I really don't know, Daniel. I really don't know. Ah. We'll clear that up later in the race. Well, the second official song that year was September by Earth, Wind & Fire. Fantastic song, fantastic band. It was number one in the Billboard R&B charts. Maurice White, frontman of Earth, Wind & Fire, said he chose 20... Uh, well, the hook of the song is the 21st night of September. chose the 21st just because um, of the way it sounded. His wife contradicted this and said it was the due date of one of their children. Um, Nico, it's, it's a very useful song for me, this, because it always reminds me when Tadej Pogacar was born. He was born on the 21st of September. Uh, the Vuelta a España that year started in Jerez de la Frontera on the 24th of April. Um, slightly odd that... The official, second official song of the Welter was a song about September, when the Welter now takes place largely in September, but didn't then, took place in April. Um, it started in Jerez de la Frontera, finished in Madrid on the 13th of May. Only 90 riders started the race, which was kind of typical back then, and 20, uh, 65 finished. Um, it almost, the Welter that year almost didn't go ahead, because the organizers since 1955, the Basque newspaper El Correo, couldn't pay the bills. The race was pretty much saved by Luis Puig, uh, the president of the Spanish Cycling Federation. The advertising agency Unipublic, who is still the majority shareholder of the Vuelta, and the clothing company Lois from Jerez de la Frontera, who also sponsored the King of the Mountains competition. Uh, there were only two leaders that year, Christian Levavasseur of France and the eventual winner, his teammate, Joop Zuttermelk. Levavasseur got away in a break on stage six from Murcia to Alcoy, but his Mika Mercier team behind even chased him because they were scared Zuttermelt wouldn't see the jersey again. In fact, he didn't get it stay. He didn't get it back until stage 13. And Peña Cabarga, the Cantabrian climb, familiar from recent welters, and where Froome, Chris Froome, took his first major win in 2011. As for Lovavasseur, well, his biggest distinction after that 1979 Vuelta was winning the competitivity prize in the 1980 Tour de France. Uh, it was Zuttermelt's second and indeed his last Vuelta start. 
The Dutchman didn't ride a single Giro d'Italia in his 18 years as a pro. He did, however, boast an unbroken record of 12 Tour de France top 10s between 1970 and 1982. He was second in the Tour six times, and he held the record of the most Tour finishes. That was 16 until George Hincapi wrote it and broke it in 2012. Nico, Joop Zuttermelk was a rider who had a bit of an invidious reputation as a wheel sucker. And this is something that's often leveled at riders, usually unfairly. And it's a criticism that has been leveled at Eric Mas, who, as we said earlier, was one of the stars of yesterday's stage. And, well, he's currently very handily placed on general classification. This feeds into the theme we've been discussing tonight, uh, instinct versus intellect, uh, reason versus emotion. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Mas is a rider who has been maligned, and he's been maligned in Spain, um, even this week, in fact. And Nico, just explain to us, or, or tell us about an incident that occurred earlier on this week that illustrates this. Well, yeah, it was uh, one of those stupid things that some, sometimes happen and in, 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 uh, are given voice on Twitter. Uh, it was on the stage to La Guardia. Uh, after the, the stage, actually, um, Eric Mas was riding back to the bus or to the hotel or whatever he was riding back, and he got insulted by one of the guys who were there standing on uh, on, on the street. Uh, he stopped and he um, he confronted him, and this guy, uh, which obviously on Twitter had a nickname, an, an anonymous uh, nickname, so he wasn't given his uh, his real identity on that. Uh, just insulted him back, and uh, there was a quite of an argument there. And he posted the video on Twitter. He started to get criticism uh, because of his uh, well, his reaction there. Uh, so he erased the video and then posted uh, something like, uh, "Enrique Mas is a very well-paid uh, sportsman, so he has to cope with uh, insults and uh, whatever uh, he comes across." which was also very, very much criticized by all the cycling fans. And luckily, uh, this guy had to close his, uh, his Twitter account. So one asked wow. less in Twitter. <laughs> what a drama. But um, I think in our, in our first Welter podcast, well, we talked about Movistar and we talked about their image in Spain and their, well, their current difficulties. They're in a relegation battle, really. Um, we talked about that as well. But Mass seems to have been the, the focus of quite a lot of criticism, not least because of his riding style. I mean, he finished on the podium of the Welter last year and, and he has had good results at Movistar. You can't say he's been a bad signing, but he's not necessarily an exciting rider. He's, and he's seen, I mean, I see lots of comments on Twitter about um, how passive he is. And, but, you know, we, we hear from a lot of Movistar, Movistar riders that they get they get a bad rap. They get unfairly criticised. Um, Mark Soler was a you know a stage winner a couple of days ago, and we talked about him as well and the image that he's been carrying around, particularly since El Dia Menos Pensado, the Movistar documentary came out. And um, before we go on, Nico, this morning I spoke to Carlos Verona of Movistar just about about this theme, the the, the criticism in Spain of Movistar and how it should be. The, the de facto national team of Spain in cycling yet is, is very often the butt of criticism. Here's Carlos Verona. Carlos, uh, the other day we saw Enrique, he was being insulted by a fan on the way to the start of the stage. 
you guys at Movistar, you get so much, well, so many of these sort of insults and criticism on social media. How does it affect you in the team? Well, for me, this is like a good sign. No? I think every time more and more people follow cycling. And you know, when you have so much people following cycling, before this sport was just like for uh, people who was crazy about cycling, no? but now it's like everyone knows about cycling and everyone reads in the news, in the bars, everybody speaks about cycling. So for sure, at the end, when there is so much people following the sport, uh, there is a lot of people and I think sometimes, yeah, there are a lot of criticism, but there is not a big fundament behind, no? So for us, I think personally, it doesn't affect us, no? We keep doing our job, we do our best, and, and yeah, and we just try to speak in the road. I mean, you've been in other teams, though, and you know that, well, when you're at Green Edge, you get none of this, at Quick Step, you get none of this. this do you sometimes think, why us? Because this is Spain, you know, <laughs> and I think in Spain, yeah, sometimes it's a super nice country, but well, we like to talk a lot, and somehow, yeah, sometimes we are our own enemies, no, but yeah, still I think there is a small part of the people, no, uh, still you can feel a lot of people supporting us, I mean, the majority of the people is always with good words for us, there is also a, a small part, no, that, but of course this small part is the one that makes more noise, and uh, yeah, it's something you have to live with. It's hard for Enric in particular, though. He gets a lot of it. Yes, yes, yes. But I think at the end, like everything, you learn to live with it. And yeah, it's not a big problem. We do our thing. We try to enjoy here, give our best. And I think this can be a very nice well done. Well, Nick, I don't know if you can hear, but the well, the heavens have opened behind me in uh, Fifth Pierna. Um, the, well, the, the rains have come. They threatened to come for a few hours. Um, but the rain often falls on Movistar. Um, figuratively speaking, and we heard that Carlos Verona, well, he claims it doesn't affect them too much. Uh, well, I, I was surprised hearing him saying that uh, the, all that criticism in that episode with Enrique uh, in La Guardia is somehow good news because that means that cycling is a mass sport in Spain and as much, pe much more people is speaking and talking about cycling than uh, some years before, so he might be right, but I'm, and I might be uh, an old school cycling fan, and uh, I think we all have to try not to uh, not to get cycling in into a football mode. Uh, we should uh, try to get much more people to cycling, but also fight to uh, to bring them to that respect that cycling has always had for the, for, for the big figures. I mean, I would be happy if a Spanish rider wins the, the Vuelta. I, I'm sure you would be happy if a British rider wins the Vuelta. But I'm not, I'm not going to be unhappy if, uh, if a Belgian rider wins or a French rider wins. I, I, all what I want to see is a good, is a good race. And, uh, and that the best wins at the end. So uh, I've, been, thing, I've been very happy seeing Roglic win. The only thing I would say where uh, Carlos maybe has a point is that uh, it, it does reflect the fact that Mass and Movistar are subject to this kind of, this almost sort of football-style invective, it does reflect a certain amount of popular interest, which I, I'm not sure still exists in a place like Italy. I'm not sure that Vincenzo Nibali would ever get heckled um, you know, however he was riding for whatever team he was riding for um, in Italy, I don't think that his profile is is big enough now in Italy 
to attract that kind of scrutiny and that kind of criticism? No, and I don't want to get too political here because to understand all the issue around Movistar and probably around the, the, the reaction of Spanish fans with Enrique Mas and other writers, you, you have to know a little bit of Spanish history and political uh, uh, points of, of different point of, points of view in, in, in Spain. But let me summarize that. Movistar has been criticized for many years, since, since I can't remember, since Miguel Indurain, back in the Banesto years, because their riders, when they won the Spanish championship, weren't wearing the, uh, the let's say, official Spanish uh, jersey for the, for the rest of the year. It was just a little flag on the left-hand side or on the, on the sleeves or whatever. And in a, in, in a, in a country where we have so many different uh, areas, such as Catalonia, Euskadi, um, a little bit in Galicia as well, Na nationalist parties, which want somehow to, uh, to get independent from Spain. This gets a lot of criticism from the Spanish nationalists. Uh, but at the same time, that confronts people uh, when with their national heroes, there's always something to criticize. Enrique Mas does live in Andorra, and he does live there probably, be, probably because he can train there, but probably and also born because in of Mallorca. the taxes. Yeah, he was born in Mallorca, but in, he doesn't pay as much taxes in Andorra as, as he would play, uh, pay in, in, in Spain. That gets criticized as well. So to understand all that atmosphere around Movistar and some Spanish riders, not only Movistar riders, and some Spanish sportsmen, because you get the same thing with Marc Marquez in, in motorsport, with Fernando Alonso in Formula One, with, uh, with many, many, with Rafa Nadal in, in, in tennis. You have also to understand a little, a little bit about the uh, political sphere, the, the political atmosphere in Spain. Before we move on, Nico, to, well, to continue talking about this theme of um Thought versus emotion, reason versus emotion. I just want to ask you about Mass, um, not about whether he will see him attack and see him ride more aggressively in the rest of the Welter, but simply how you think he's going to get on in the rest of the Welter. I think I think he's pretty much recovered from his mental breakdown in the Tour de France. I don't know if he has worked with a psychologist. If he, as he said, uh, all the. Uh, all the hugs and words he has uh, he has had from Eusebio and uh, and his endurance in, in the start. And, and for those off. for those who don't know what what form did that take? You, you say mental breakdown. Um, I, I mean, is this something that he has said and has admitted himself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After uh, when uh, in the last part of the of the race in the Tour de France, he he recognized that uh, he 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 was not only afraid; he was scared. Of uh, of going down the mountains, uh, he was uh, feeling a lot of pressure from himself, from the team, from the fans, but especially from himself, and um, and he couldn't perform. He couldn't perform. He was uh, he the 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 descents from the mountains were scaring the hell out of him. So he and now he said that he's recovered on that on that part. He's enjoying cycling again. The results are are, are coming back. He's been third in uh, in La Guardia with a with a very good performance. He was, but once again he was criticised yesterday because he didn't he didn't help Renko uh, going out. Uh, he was criticised by the fans on Twitter, and Renko said he understood his uh, that the way uh, Enrique was moving in in the race. 
I think the biggest issue, and I think you were there uh, back uh, in in uh, the last Vuelta, Alberto's last Vuelta in the rest day when Alberto Contador said, I think Enrique Mas is my error in the uh, in, in Spanish cycling. He's still paying that. The, 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 the hype from Enrique, the hopes on Enrique were so high that once again all that pressure has paid off in a in, in a bad manner on, on him. It, it's, it's funny talking about sort of inheriting a crown. Today, Juan Ayuso was in the mix zone and Eric Mas was, well, he was waiting to, an, to do an interview behind Juan Ayuso and the two of them obviously know each other pretty well and uh, seem to be good friends and, and Eric came along and tried to push um, Juan Ayuso out of the way and said, you know, I'm the, this is my turn, this is my mix zone, you know, it's... Um, I, I'm the king kind of thing. Um, it was a, yeah, they, a funny they moment. Both, they both they, laughed. They both live in Andorra, so they, they have to know themselves very well. I said we talk about another rider now who, well, ha- has had a tendency to possibly overthink things in the past. And, well, as you'll hear him explain to me now, this was a bind that he was caught in yesterday. We're talking about Pavel Sivakov. Um, another rider who, well, had a, a prodigious under-23 career. Um, he was ninth in the Giro in 2019. He won Tour of Poland and Tour of the Alps that year. Um, last year, he had a difficult season. Um, El Siv, as we dubbed him in the Vuelta Espana last year, but he's riding extremely well so far in the Giro d'Italia. He is currently... Sixth on general classification, only one minute, 27 seconds down on uh, Remco Vanderpool. Um, his teammate, Theo Gegenhart, is also riding very well, and he's on um, exactly the same well, deficit from Remco Vanderpool. Um, and, well, El Siv is the subject of today's Encontro del Día. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Um, well, good to see you riding well. Um, how how satisfied have you been with the first week? Yeah, pretty pretty satisfied. I mean, the only the only moment where I wasn't so satisfied was yesterday. Probably, I think uh, I lacked a bit of confidence there. Uh, you know, when uh, when Remco like uh, made the base a bit harder, it was still six k to go, and I was yeah maybe too conservative. Looked at my watch, I was like, wow, still a long way to go. Maybe I'll back off a little bit. Where were the watts compared to you know your best sort of numbers? It was yeah, it was probably if I would have kept at that pace uh, for the whole climb, I would have been one of my PBs, I let's say. But yeah, I mean uh, yeah, I was just you know maybe also you know seeing Roglic drop, Yates dropped. Uh, for me, I haven't been in that place let's say too often in my career. So you know maybe I got a bit like. Um, yeah, not. Yeah, maybe in a way a bit scared. I was like, oh, maybe I should back off a little bit. It's still six k to go after that, uh, like six percent. Maybe I'll pay it. But at the end, I regret uh, that I didn't at least go with a user there um, because then the, the the last part of the climb was actually easier than I thought. It was much faster. Even if the gradient was six percent in the corners, you could recover quite a lot and. Uh, but yeah, I mean the good the, the good thing is that the legs are here and uh, yeah I should should be more confident in myself and uh, and go for it in the in the next stages. I mean no one did come around Roglic even crossed the line first. I mean was that almost uh, a courtesy because he pulled the whole way that no one wanted to 
come around him and that, that's that's not the done thing in those situations or was he still the strongest guy in that group do you think yeah i don't think i think he was on the limit yesterday uh actually i launched the sprint with like 250 to go i went uh, yeah i sprinted with 250 to go and he was the only guy who passed me on the line yeah uh but yeah i mean he pulled he pulled in the climb and kind of not steady but yeah uh he had to pull there so yeah i mean i mean he was strong but i think yeah he was not uh, not at his best i reckon yesterday and pavel you said i mean we said you're in a great position at this point um obviously you won burgos have you figured something out this year that you hadn't figured out before to get to this position is there anything different I think it's just a clean run a little bit. Even in the beginning of the season, I had like a few setbacks, illnesses. Uh, yeah, quite a few illnesses actually. And uh, this summer, everything went pretty well. Also, let's say changed my nutrition approach this year. Um, I think, uh, yeah, the training as well changed a little bit. So yeah, I think a few things clicked. Uh, got some more experience. I'm coming to the races more calm. Like people uh, always say, you're an overthinker. You're too intelligent for your own good. I think so. I think yesterday that's what happened, really. Uh, you know, if I wouldn't have think and I would have just uh, trusted my instinct and just went uh, went deep, I think I would have been, yeah, maybe in a different position today. But that's how it is. I think I have to learn from that and maybe, yeah, trust trust my instinct a little bit more in the next few days. That's a hard thing to do, though, isn't it? When you can't stop yourself being rational and and trying to figure things out intellectually, rationally. Exactly. I think you have to to find a balance. Uh, there is some moments in the race I think you, you should just go all in uh, obviously yesterday was usually you always do it like at the end of a climb but yesterday you had to do it like let's say in the middle of the climb so that's why maybe you know that rationality was not the best thing to do but yeah no I mean um, I mean yeah you still have to, to, to stay a bit like this I reckon to pace yourself it's, it's a long race it's three weeks I think in the, in the end in the end what I don't want is to finish the race and have some regrets like uh, like I had yesterday, so uh, no, it's still still a lot of days to come where where I can hopefully do something. And well, you're in a great position on GC. Teo is as well, and Carlos. So what is the what is the sort of strategy going forward with you three? I mean, is Richard still is he still protected? I mean, he wasn't didn't have a teammate with him yesterday. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's. I think we can we can play all the cards now, uh, especially tomorrow. Maybe try and you know like put pressure on Quick Step with with some of some maybe even with Richard. You know, it's gonna be a really hard start. So yeah, try to really put the, their their team under pressure. Uh, I don't know. You know, we'll see. I think tomorrow how strong they are uh, because yeah, it's you need a strong team to control uh, to control a, a Grand Tour and. Uh, yeah, we definitely can use numbers. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters, of course. As ever, you can get 25% off the Science in Sport range at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. They have everything you need to fuel your ride. And, well, one of the byproducts of all of the energy products, of course, is the 
uh, gel wrappers and the energy bar wrappers and sachets and science and sport have a recycling scheme so don't just discard your wrappers on the side of the road that's really not cool collect them up put them in your back pocket and send them to science and sport for recycling for free the plastic and aluminium layers are separated the aluminium is recovered for reprocessing the plastic degrades and is separated into gas and oil and the gas is used to power the plant that's doing all of the recycling and nothing goes to landfill uh, there are details on the science in sport website about how you can request a free recycling bag and send them back all of your rubbish now before I hand back to Daniel in Spain, some exciting news from our clothing partners MAP because the DOT cycling jersey, the collaboration between MAP and the cycling podcast and the jersey which won the listener vote during the Tour de France will be on sale worldwide on September the 20th, so between the end of the Welter and the World Championships. Uh, the entire collection in fact will be on sale, that includes the DOT jersey and matching bib shorts a cycling casket, socks and water bottle. Now the collection is being produced in exclusive quantities so to make sure you don't miss out and to get a heads up in your region when the collection is available go to map.cc and sign up for their newsletter and you'll get notification when the cycling podcast dot jersey and assorted collection is available very exciting i'm certainly looking forward to getting my hands on the dot jersey before i head off to scotland for my cycle tour now it really is back to daniel and coverage of the welter Well, Nico, the Finnish town today and where I am still is called Fistierna, uh, uh, and the name does come from the cistern, i.e. a receptacle to hold water, and um, well, it's very apt at the moment because, as you can probably still hear, um, I think we might be flooded by the time we leave here tonight in the press room. And um, Before the break, Nico, we heard from Pavel Sivakov and this sort of battle in his head yesterday about um, following Remco Evenepoel or trying to follow him and sticking with Primoz Roglic. It's going to be an interesting one to watch over the next couple of weeks still very early days of course in this Vuelta España also had a had a word with uh, Sabi Arteche who is uh, Richard Carapaz's coach this morning and he he confirmed to me that Carapaz despite what he said um, prior to this uh, Vuelta España his preparation wasn't ideal it seemed to go off course slightly in the week or two before the Vuelta España though um, he had some family issues to attend to I think in the in the last week before the Vuelta got to the Netherlands quite late and well it's been reflected in his performances so far in the Vuelta España. You're not completely out of it, and Ineos certainly, well, they hope to be able to use Carapaz um, later, or maybe this weekend when we get to the mountains. He's 19th at the moment, 2 minutes and 56 seconds down on general classification. But we have got uh, a couple of big stages coming this weekend, a big Asturian weekend. So, well, it's that time of the episode. Take it away, Rob Hatch again. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. We'll start with la cena de ayer. Um, I have had a hard time so far, Nico, in this Vuelta a España, avoiding steak, um, which I don't really want to eat, but I've had a, a hard time avoiding it. Um, last night, however, I did try something different. I had some callos in Cantabria, which is uh, well, it's a, a sort of chickpea soup with uh, other unmentionable parts of animal thrown in. I think the, the, it varies from place to place, um, maybe town to town, what parts of what animal are thrown in with the chickpeas. Um, but it was, it was very tasty. And I did 
try to sort of skirt around the bits of meat and fat and whatever else was in there and mainly only ate the chickpeas but it was very enjoyable um nico what have we got apart from fabada cachopo and sidra and cider what have we got coming in asturias from a cycling point of view in the vuelta a España, and particularly tomorrow uh i think asturias is one of those cycling places in spain uh you get all those mountains uh, there, which are very steep, very short, but very, very steep. And the weather factor is always an issue in, in Asturias. Because you can have very, very bad weather there, just like yesterday in Cantabria, which, which is, for those who don't know, um, next to, to, uh, to Asturias. But you can also have uh, very different weather from one valley to the other. So that makes it very, very difficult. We have five climbs tomorrow before the final climb. So we could have uh, like five different weather regions in, in the same stage or we can have rain the whole day. But as you know, when it's hot, it's very hot and very humid. So uh, it's never easy uh, to, to, to race in Asturias. And we have two stages of that tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. Where are we going from and to tomorrow, Nico? Well, tomorrow it's a, one of those uh, semi-short stages, just just about 150 kilometers with, uh, as I said, uh, five climbs starting in La Pola de la Viana, that's, uh, that's in Asturias, of course, and climbing at the end in Collao Fancuaya, a name that even I, as a Spanish can pronounce no. so good. It's uh, one of those first-timers in the, in the Vuelta España, uh, a little bit more than 1,000 meters uh, height, coming from uh, from Grau, which is just uh, 69 meters above sea level. So it's a very hard uh, finish uh, in, in Asturias. And as I said, uh, I, I think the main uh, the main factor could be the weather. Do you know what the forecast is saying about tomorrow? Um, I've seen three different ones. <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen sun, I've I've seen clouds, and I've seen rain. So, <laughs> and it's going to be a really interesting final climb because, well, as you said, it's never been used in the Vuelta a España before, uh, and there are some very very steep sections. It's a sort of combination of typical sort of Cuesta de Cabra, the goat track that the Vuelta a España has become infamous for. There are sections that are a bit like that, nineteen percent. Um, sections, 17% sections and then there are sections that are more reminiscent of the climb we saw yesterday um, sort of gentler gradients uh, 6%, 8%, 4.9% there was quite a bit of talk after yesterday's stage of how it's on those gentler gradients that nowadays we tend to see bigger time gaps when the speed is higher and that was that was the, the case to an extent yesterday but um It'll, it will be very interesting to see if we get the same from Remco Evenepoel, um tomorrow as we did yesterday. He's in, in great form in the mix zone. He's very chipper, very confident. He seems a, a much more, to have a lot, much more poise than uh, the Remco Evenepoel of a year ago, and particularly the Remco Evenepoel that we saw at the Giro d'Italia um, in 2021 when things went south for him well beyond the just after the midway point in the race but I, I do sense Nico there's still a bit of scepticism the 
the other riders, his rivals, they didn't see anything yesterday that they didn't already know he could do. Um, what they're unsure of is how long he can sustain it and how many times he can, he can sustain it and whether he can do the same thing on climbs like the Sierra uh, Nevada that we have in the back end of the race. On that scepticism... Um, that reigning scepticism in the peloton. This is what, for example, Ben O'Connor said this morning about Remco Vanderpool's prospects for the rest of the Vuelta. Has Remco finished well in a three-week Grand Tour before? Not yet. He will eventually, for sure. Will it be now or will it be next year or the year after? I don't know, but definitely what he did yesterday was really impressive. So that's just how it is now. I don't think anyone's surprised. Nico tonight we were supposed to have and I have actually got it's already recorded and it will feature maybe tomorrow got an interview with his baby with his old babysitter someone who babysitted Remco when he was one year old so that's perhaps something to look forward to but I'm keeping that on my sleeve for now Nico I'm going to thank you that just about concludes the entertainment for this evening let let us speak a little bit about that interview with uh, with ah, the user. you Maybe have an interview. Can... You have an interview up your sleeve as well. Um, you uh, this morning did an interview, or yesterday did an interview with whom? Uh, I spoke with uh, the guy who uh, who coached uh, Juan Ayuso over four years during his under sixteen uh, years uh, because. Actually, that's the uh, cycling club in my hometown, in L'Alfaz del Pi, which is only a few kilometers away from Javier, where, uh, where uh, Ayuso uh, used to live before he moved to, to Andorra. And I just wanted to point out, if you want, a little bit about what he said and what should be expected from, from Ayuso. And, of course, as an, as an expert, because also uh, another Spanish, important Spanish rider, in this case in cyclocross, Felipe Ortiz, has also been in that club with this very same guy whose name must is be, Luis Gerardo there must be something. There must be something in the water, Nico. You'll be winning Vueltas a España before we know it. Uh, yeah, but my, uh, I think it must be Master 50 or Master 60 in my <laughs> case uh, before, before I think about winning something. What did, he, what did, what did you learn in this interview? Well, I, I, I learned that uh, he said that uh, we, regarding, because I asked him, is, is, this, is this kind of guy like Remco, which uh, is, is always about himself, to be the leader of the team? Uh, and he said, not at all, because one, when we was, was in the under-16 uh, uh, category here, he, I made him uh, work for the rest of the team, even though he was better than the rest of the team. And he never said no until one day, just one day, he said, I want to win this race, I want to win this stage. And this guy, Luis, said, well, Juan, if you don't win, we're going to have a very, very, very silly face at the end of the race. And he said, okay, please, 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 Luis, let me try, let me try. And he went and won the stage, won, the, won that, uh, that race, whatever it was. So he told me that once he left for, uh, for a bigger goal, for a bigger team, the last conversation he had with, he, he had with him was something like, Juan, Whatever the team you end up, you're going to improve that team just because of your character, because of of how you are. You're not. You are the leader of a team, even if you don't know that. Even if you have to work for the rest. And I think, having seen what he has done until now, and uh, and seeing 
how he he's performing in, in the Vuelta. I think he was quite right. He knows Juan very well. And, 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 and at last he told me, because I asked him, what should we expect from him? And he said, Nico, um, listen, if he retires tomorrow, it, he's learning. He's only 19. If he gets to the second week, he's learning. He's only Hopefully, 19. I hope he's not, not going to retire from cycling tomorrow. If he retires, no, if, he, no, no. if he pulls out of the welter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he retires from the weather, he pulls out from the from, from La Vuelta. Yeah, sorry about that. That's the lost in translation no, 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 no. thing. Um, so he said he's just learning and he's eventually going to win a Vuelta España and eventually he's going to win the Tour de France one day. Uh, it was quite a, a very interesting interview. And the last thing he told me, because I asked him, what about the young guys now in the school, those 16-year-old guys who are seeing Pogacar, Ayuso, Carlos, winning races, uh, being 19 or 20 years old, Remco himself. What what happens with these guys when they are 18 and they are not not they haven't become professionals and uh, still have to wait a long time? And and he was very honest and he said this is the worst thing that ever happened to cycling, to to, to, to cycling base uh, in the history of cycling because as I thought he confirmed that. There are many 18, 19-year-olds, good, good cyclists, that are quitting because they think their time is over and they are only 19 years old. Not so long ago, you turned pro when you were 23, 24 years. So. We need to tell them the story, the parables of, uh, well, Jay Vine yesterday. There are other guys like Mike Woods, who came to professional cycling very late, going further back. Ludo Dixons, remember him, yeah. the Belgian rider who was, um, I think he was almost 30 Alex when Zula. he turned professional. Yeah, well, so there, yeah. there are plenty, there are plenty. But um, yeah, that's, that's a, I suppose, an understandable, foreseeable trend and an unfortunate result of the rise of these prodigies, these in, these. Super Galacticos, 19-year-old Super Galacticos that we've seen in the last couple of years. Nico, that does conclude tonight's entertainment on a very, very interesting note indeed. Um, I'm going to thank you for your contribution this evening and we'll be seeing you later in La Vuelta a España, I think. We'll be hearing from you maybe as soon as Tuesday where we when we'll be down in your neck of the woods near Alicante. Tomorrow, I think, I think I'm pretty sure I'm going to be joined by uh, Dan Martin... Super Dan Martin, the winner of Liège-Bastogne-Liège, Giro-Lombardia, Grand Tour stages, in every Grand Tour, in fact. So join Dan and me tomorrow. And, um, well, that's about it. We're off to Oviedo tonight. And until then, until tomorrow, hasta luego. Thanks, Nico. Bye-bye. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney. Yeah. Mm-hmm.